What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayolari. So last night was a brutal game for the Red Sox. Hopefully you guys did not waste any time on your Friday night watching that game. That was just an absolute disaster of a game, an embarrassing game for the Red Sox, an embarrassing game to be a Red Sox fan as well. But I'm going to talk about that game, break down what happened, break down all the records that the Red Sox broke or on the wrong side of for the history books. And then I'm also going to update you guys on my NBA free agency tracker and what play is signed where. I'll talk about trade rumors for Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, update you guys on all of that. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about the Summer League and talk about which players stood out in the Summer League for all the rookies. I'll talk about how the Celtics performed in the Summer League. So to start things off with the Red Sox, lost last night 28-5 to the Blue Jays. Toronto had 29 hits, which was ridiculous. The Red Sox were on the wrong side of multiple records. So the history books for the Red Sox last night does not look good one bit. The Blue Jays broke their single-game record for runs with 28 runs scored last night. They had 25 runs for the first five innings. They're up 27-4 after six innings. They had 29 hits, which was actually the most by any team since 1992. The Brewers had 29 hits against the Blue Jays, actually, in 1992. And that was the sixth most hits since 1901. So 29 hits, which was the most by any team since 1992, and the sixth most since 1901. The Blue Jays scored the most runs by any team this season with 28. It's hard to believe, right? I mean, 28 runs happens every game, doesn't it? So, most runs allowed by the Red Sox actually in a game in franchise history. And I was thinking, when I saw the score was at one point 25 to 3, I said to myself, I don't think I've ever seen the Red Sox down by that much in my life. So I knew it was going to break a record. They did break the most runs allowed by a Red Sox team in a game in franchise history. That was a Sox worst loss in the last 99 years. And according to Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, that's the largest loss in 99 years since the Red Sox last lost that much. Lost by that much was 27 to three. They lost to Cleveland in 1923. They haven't lost by more than 21 runs in the last 99 years. That was the fifth most runs in a game during the MLB's modern era, which is 1900 to the present. That's the modern era, according to Stat Center. The Rangers had 30 runs on the Orioles in 2007. The Braves and White Sox both scored 29 runs in a game before Braves in 2020. The White Sox in 1955, and then there's Toronto in fifth. Technically tied for third in a game, most runs in a game during the MLB's modern era 28. And per Sarah Langs, who works for the MLB, the Red Sox have given up 56 runs over the last three games, which is the most runs allowed in any three-game span since 1901. Absolutely abysmal by that Red Sox team. They should be ashamed of themselves, honestly, to even put on a Red Sox uniform and go out there and perform like that, which I'm not saying you're going to win every game. You're not. But some things last night were so inexcusable, like that pop-up in the fifth inning that I'm going to talk about. And then Jaron Duran in center field not chasing after that ball that he just missed in the light and then just made no attempt to go and grab it and try to make a play on it and ends up giving up an inside the park grand slam. It was inexcusable. Alex Cora needs to be held accountable. Hyam Bloom needs to be held accountable. I know at the end of the day he's not out there on the field, but you have a guy playing center field that shouldn't be playing center field. You have a guy at first base that is not a first baseman, Dahlbeck nor Cordero. You have Durant at center who does not belong at center field as a batter, does not belong at center field as a fielder. You have Christian Vasquez playing first base now because you really, you're really you not going to get any offensive production out of Cordero or Dahlbeck. It's ridiculous what this Red Sox team looks like. And it gets worse. The Red Sox, according to an ESPN statistic, have a minus 47 run differential over the last three games. And if you look at it, that's the worst over three-game span in the modern era, which is since 1900. That was the start of the modern era. 
That's the fourth worst run differential in MLB history and the worst since the Louisville Colonels in 1894. This was a historic game, and we were on the wrong end of the history books. A depressing game for the Red Sox, especially considering how much money this team could spend and we choose not to spend it and actually have premier plays at every position because we don't want to pay Bogots and Devas the money they deserve. And for comparison, just to talk about how bad this three-game stretch has been for the Red Sox, the Red Sox over the last three games lost all three games with a minus 47 run differential. The Yankees in their last 49 losses have a minus 45 run differential. And the Red Sox last three games have been outscored 55-8, to a minus 47 run differential, while the Yankees last 49 losses, they only have a minus 45 run differential. And it's honestly hard to watch because this Red Sox team has shown flashes of greatness. And if you look at it, they beat the Yankees at one point three straight games. The Red Sox are the only team in baseball this year to beat the Yankees in three consecutive games. I know those three games stretched over two different series, but they were down 5-3 to three in one of the games, 1-6-5. We're down 6-2 to two in one of the games, and 1-11-6. And then we're down 3-2 to two in one of the games, and 5-4. This Red Sox team has shown flashes where you think, okay, this team, you know, just one of these off nights. I thought maybe last Saturday versus the Yankees was an off night. Then Sunday it happened again. And I realized that's not just an off night. This Red Sox team is in trouble. And then last night, 28-5, they lose. You got Lourdes Gurriel Jr. of the Blue Jays chefing up a fruit cocktail in the dugout during the fifth inning. Which, honestly, a side note here, but I think that's disrespectful to the Red Sox. I think it's disrespectful to the game of baseball to be doing that in the dugout. He did have six hits in his seven at-bats, which actually tied the Blue Jays' record for most hits in a single game. But you have a guy in your own home stadium at Fenway Park chefing up a fruit cocktail in the middle of the game during the fifth inning because he's bored. And they're up by 20 runs, so there's no need to even pay attention. That's, di- that's disrespectful. The Red Sox should see that and get a spark in them. Maybe print out a picture of it and put it in the clubhouse so every player can see it. And maybe use that as motivation. But now I'm seeing reports that Devis might now be going to the I.O. with a hamstring injury. And J.D. Martinez is out of the lineup today. So you're losing two of your best players there. So it's not going to be today. The Red Sox aren't going to get any payback today. Who knows if they get payback at all. This season honestly could be a wash. It just could be over at this rate. Another statistic. Per Bill Shaken of the LA Times, the Blue Jays had a run differential in their last 93 games of plus 24. So coming into last night, a plus 24 run differential in their first 93 games. Their run differential last night, plus 23. They now had a plus 47 run differential over the season, went up 23 runs in one night. Plus 23 run differential in one game compared to a plus 24 run differential in their first 93 games combined. This Red Sox team... That was one of the worst performances I've ever seen, and I've never seen a Red Sox team try less than they did last night. Kevin Gosman's run support, who started for the Blue Jays last night, went from 50th in run support for starting pitches to 6th among qualified starters in the matter of one night because he got 28 runs of offensive support. And it honestly only gets worse for the Red Sox. Romel Toppy, who I just mentioned earlier in the show, very briefly, had an inside a pot grand slam last night. That's the first inside the puck Grand Slam since 2017 in the major leagues. Michael A. Taylor did that. And on the play, Jaron Duran playing in center field, lost the ball in the lights, similar to Christian Arroyo did in right field against the Yankees a couple weeks ago now. Duran loses it in the lights. It bounces behind him. And rather than chasing after it and trying to make a play on it like Christian Arroyo, Arroyo honestly recovered very well, found the ball in right field, and actually had a great relay into Trevor Story, who hosed Joey Gallo at the plate. But last night... 
Duran watches it bounce, sees it against the wall or whatever, bouncing. Verdugo has to come flying in from left field, dives to try to get to the ball faster, tries to make a play on it, grabs it, throws it in, makes a relay. And obviously, Ramel Tapia still scores, but at least he made a play on it. But what is Duran doing? There's two outs. That's only a 6 nothing ball game. So if he actually makes that play, it's 6 nothing. But because he misses that ball, it's 10 nothing with two outs. And you could say, oh, maybe he thought the ball was a home run and he lost it. And that's the reason every star bouncing, he didn't chase it. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for letting, for, first of all, losing the ball at center field. In your own home stadium, you shouldn't be losing any ball since you've been playing center field there for the Red Sox now. For the whole season, you've been playing for the Red Sox. The last month and a half, you've been in the majors. You've been playing center field. But to let the ball bounce behind you and not make any effort to go chase after it, like Christian Arroyo did, and honestly, I commend Arroyo now for even trying to make a play on it. And Arroyo did frantic, was frantic and everything, just like Duran was. And Duran said it was the most hopeless feeling you could ever feel, and most helpless feeling. But to not chase after it, and then to say, oh, I saw Verdugo running in, and I don't want to get in his way chasing after it. He should be sent down for that. For that play on its own, he should be sent down. And I liked Duran. I did. But the way I've seen him playing out the plate over the last two to three weeks, you really can't be supporting him. And then to see that play last night, when I consider how much effort a team gives heavily and how much I care about a team, I grade how much they hustle. After loose balls, especially if you look at the LA Clippers, I'm a big Los Angeles Clippers fan because, as I say, they're all, they're all dogs. And they're always giving it their all. They'll dive on every loose ball. They'll chase after every single rebound going out of bounds. They would never let a 2-1 none happen or a 2-1-1 happen. They're always flying down the court giving it their all. They're diving on the ground for every loose ball. That Clippers team gives it their all every single play. And that's why I love them. That's why I'm a huge Clippers fan. One of my favorite teams in all the sports. But as for the Red Sox last night, seeing Jaron Duran not even chase after that ball, when I honestly take into consideration heavily, I consider how much a team tries. That was honestly one of the most embarrassing plays I've seen the Red Sox have in the whole entire time I've been a Red Sox in my entire life. I've never seen the Red Sox try less in my life than they did last night. I've never seen the Red Sox have as helpless of a play than Jaron Duran last night in center field. And honestly, it was another bad play that was just as bad, but the game was already over at this rate. When Duran let that play happen, it was 6 nothing with two outs. If he makes that catch in center field, it's still 6 nothing, and you get out of the inning. But last night, there was another bad play in the fifth inning. A pop-up in the, in the infield, in between the pitcher's mound and home plate. You got Raphael Devers running in from third base. You got Kyle Orton running in from the pitcher's mound. And you got Kevin Pilecki coming from behind the plate to go try to make a play on it. And all three guys just watched it drop. And let another run score. We looked like Little Leaguers. The Sox allowed 19 runs with two outs. The Blue Jays had 19 RBIs with two outs last night. So that means you make a few plays... A few more plays than you did. Maybe 5 to 10 more plays than you should have. The Red Sox, rather than losing 28 to 5, it could have been maybe like a 10 to 5 or 12 to 5 game. A little bit more respectful and make it look like you're a Major League Baseball team and not Little League is playing like you don't care. And it only got worse for the Red Sox. Every Blue Jays starter in their lineup had two plus hits. So it had at least two hits. And then seven of nine guys in their starting lineup had at least three hits. Had three plus hits. Three plus hits for seven out of nine guys in their lineup. The Red Sox pitchers only had two scoreless innings in the entire game. And that was a seventh inning and eighth inning led by Jake Diekman and Herakazo Samuel Moore out of the pen. And Alex Cora actually left 
his bullpen in the game because he probably didn't want to break any records more than anyone else wanted to. He didn't want the Red Sox to be giving up 30 runs. And luckily, he kept it under 30, 28. So that's an accomplishment. But the Red Sox allowed 29 hits last night, 28 runs, 5 walks to 9 strikeouts, and gave up 5 home runs and 9 innings pitched. And the Red Sox, all that 5 of their runs came up home runs. Christian Vasquez had a solo home run in the 4th to make it a 14-1 to game. He was 3-4 for in the game, 2 home runs. Actually became the only player, second only player that is, since 1900, since the modern era, the second player ever to have multiple home runs in a game where their team lost by 20-plus runs. And he joins Jim Tomey, who did that in 2002, and credit to ESPN on that stat. JBJ also homemade as well, had a two-run home run. And then Rob Refsnyder, who's been playing well for the Red Sox, one of the only bright spots, to be honest, hit a home run as well. And now you question, what is wrong with this Red Sox team? And I think if you look at it, they're struggling hitting-wise, pitching-wise, injuries. This team's depleted. And there's no other way around it. This Red Sox team has hit rock bottom. They're 12-27 and versus the AL East on the year with a 308 win percentage. They have a run differential of minus 86 in AL East games. Versus other opponents, though, 36-19 and record with a 655 win percentage. So they just cannot compete in the AL East. They have a plus 81 run differential versus other opponents outside of the AL East. But in the AL East, 12-27 and record with a minus 86 run differential compared to a 36-19 and record with a plus 81 run differential against other opponents. They have 39 games left versus the AL East on the season and only 29 games left versus other opponents. This Red Sox team is in trouble. In trouble. And credit to Pete Abraham and this statistic I'm going to say right now, Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe, in the last three games, the Sox have pitched 25 innings, allowing 55 hits, 55 runs, 53 of those being earned, 19 walks to 24 strikeouts, 11 home runs in those 25 innings, 6 hit batsmen, 19.08 ERA, a 19.08 ERA, which rose the season ERA from 3.83 to 4.28 in the matter of three games. And then Brian Barrett of WEEI, who does great work, I talk about him a lot, just like I talk about Pete Abraham and Rob Bradford and Chris Cattell, I'm always giving them credit where it's due. Brian Barrett of WEEI tweeted out, the Sox are 6-15 and in the last 21 games and have been outscored 154-69 to over that 21-game stretch. With a minus 75 run differential, it only gets worse. The Red Sox pitching, so when I questioned what's wrong with this team, you're going to see it in a second when I name all these statistics. The Red Sox pitching over the last 21 games have a 6.91 ERA, which is 30th in baseball, dead last in baseball, the worst in baseball, worst ERA, 6.91, worst ERA in baseball over the last 21 games. A 169 whip, so walks and hits allowed per inning pitched, 1.69 base run is essentially per inning pitched, which is 30th in baseball, dead last again. They've allowed a 290 opponent batting average, which is once again 30th, dead last in baseball, a 10.8% walk rate, which is 30th yet again, and a 43% hot hit rate, which is 30th yet again. The Red Sox are dead last in their last 21 games in ERA, WHIP, opponent batting average, walk rate, and hot hit rate. Dead last in the major leagues. And then you question, all right, if their pitching's been bad, what about their offense? That's been bad as, bad as well, but just not as bad. The Red Sox hitting 233 over the last 21 games with a 6-15 record, which is 23rd in batting average, 233, 23rd in batting average over the last 21 games. 
A 289 on base percentage, which is 27th in the major leagues, so third to last almost. And a 688 OPS, which is on base percentage plus slugging percentage. 688 OPS, which is 24th in baseball. And you would look at it. Some of these guys that were hot for the Red Sox at one point and now cold. Jaron Duran is hitting 130 since July 4th in his last 13 games. 20 strikeouts to two walks and a 6 or 46 of the plate. The Red Sox are 3-10 and 10 over that 13-game stretch since July 4th. And Duran no longer can hit at the major league level. The MLB pitchers have done their homework on him, and they know where to pitch to him to make him hit into outs. And they're 3-10 and 10 over the Duran's last 13 games, that is, since July 4th. He is such a defensive liability in center field. He's a minus 7 defensive run saved rating right now which is third worst among all center fielders in baseball. And I don't know how Jackie Bradley Jr. can't be in center field because he's the only one trying out there with Verdugo last night. You have two guys that care. Everyone else doesn't care if you win or lose at that rate. When you're down 10 runs, everyone's quitting. Verdugo and Bradley were giving it their all, and I give Ref Snyder and Vasquez credit too. But this Red Sox team two weeks ago probably were going to be buyers at the deadline. Now you have to question, this team has to be sellers. This team's done. This team's depleted. There's no up from here. This Red Sox team's hit rock bottom, and this season's honestly a wash. The last three games, that was all I need to see. Nate Evaldi has allowed eight runs now in his last start, which was yesterday to the Blue Jays. He's a free agent after this season ends. Same thing with J.D. Martinez, free agent after this season ends. And Xander Bogats will definitely be opting out after this season. Because why would he want to stay with a team that doesn't want to pay him anyways? He deserves a big contract, and I don't know why High and Bloom wouldn't give him that. High and Bloom's being the GM of this team, like he's the GM of the Tampa Bay Rays or the Baltimore Orioles or the Arizona Diamondbacks, teams that aren't spending any money. This is what Haim Bloom's doing here in Boston. He's nickel and diming everything like he's still the working in the front office of the Tampa Bay Rays, like he's working for the Baltimore Orioles and he only has a $30 million payroll when he can spend $200-plus million. But at this rate, who knows if you're going to pay Devis? You're not going to pay Bogots. I think Bogots is gone. I don't think Bogots has any chance of coming back. And I think Devis, who knows, at this rate, why would he want to stay? I wouldn't want to stay in Boston if I, if I was Devis. Because why would you want to be paying, why would you want to be paid less money and be lowballed when you deserve $350 million? Devis is only 25 years old and is one of the best hitters in the major leagues. One of the best sluggers. And the Red Sox don't want to pay him. So you look at it, Nate Evaldi expiring contract, J.D. Martinez expiring contract, Xander Bogots definitely opting out. He'll be gone. And then Jackie Bradley Jr. has a $12 million mutual option at the end of this season. And I think if you look at it, I don't think he has great value, but a team maybe could use an extra glove off the bench. He's a great defensive center fielder. So that's four guys right there that could be moved. Christian Vasquez, yet again, another expiring contract. He could be gone. All these expiring contracts could be moved. And I wouldn't be surprised if Avaldi, Martinez, Bogots, Bradley, or Vasquez were traded at the deadline. And what's the point of even getting Chris Sale back? That's another thing. You'd say injuries are the issue. Injuries are definitely part of it. But what's the point in even bringing back Walker and Hill and Sale? If they're all hurt right now, what's the point of rushing them back? And especially with some of them with expiring contracts. I believe Rich Hill was only a one-year deal, and Walker was only a one-year deal too. Why bring them back? Trade them too at this rate. Walker was a one-year $7 million deal, which is a bargain. And then Rich Hill was a one-year $5 million deal. So you got Hill, 
Nate Evaldi and Michael Walker all could be traded, all one-year contracts expiring at the end of this year, so we have 60-plus games left. And those guys I named, Walker, Hill, Evaldi, Bradley, Vasquez, Martinez, Bogats, those are all what comes to my head when I think about this Red Sox team and who's free agent. So there's definitely more, more expiring contracts that the de- Red Sox could definitely move at the deadline because what's the point of even keeping them? At this rate, this Red Sox team, I think, is depleted, as I said, and I don't think there's anything positive in this Red Sox future for this season, at least. I think this season's a wash, to be honest. After watching the last three games and seeing their effort, I don't know how the Red Sox could honestly recover. Truly, I don't, I don't see any up from here. And that comes from someone that's a positive Red Sox fan because they've come on here multiple times and the Red Sox beat the Yankees in dramatic fashion a few times a week, a week or two ago now. I was psyched when Gita Downs and Alex Verdugo that walk-off play against the Yankees a couple weeks ago. I was so positive. My outlook was so positive in the rest of the season. You had Chris Sale coming back from injury. You had Michael Walker and Rich Hill coming back at some point. You had Paxton coming back in August at some point. Everything was looking up for the Red Sox. And now, everything's looking down. Rock bottom, as I said. So, the long and the short of it is, I don't think the Red Sox have any choice but to be sellers at this deadline. You're not going to win with this team. Team's depleted. Team's washed up. This is it. Avaldi. Bogats, Martinez, Bradley, Hill, Waka, Paxton, all could be moved to the deadline, and Vasquez as well, and I wouldn't be surprised. This could be like that Red Sox trade deadline where they just ripped up everything and traded John Lester and John Lackey and Andrew Miller. That's what this trade deadline could be like for this Red Sox team. The trade deadline's August 2nd, so it's coming up. And speaking of trades, multiple teams have reached out to the Los Angeles Angels and trying to acquire Shohei Otani. And in order to do that, you'd have to give up a ton. Even though he only has, I believe, one year left on his deal after this year, he's going to be getting a four-year, $200 million, five-year, $250 million extension at some point because of how dominant of a pitcher and a hitter he is. I know last night wasn't his best game. In six and a third innings pitched, he allowed six runs on six hits, one walk to 11 strikeouts and allowed two home runs, dropped his record now from 9-4, to four. now it's 9-5 and five is his record, and a 2-8 ERA in the season now. But now, though, if you look at it, six earned runs, you think he had a really bad game. Heading into the seventh inning, he had six scoreless innings with 11 strikeouts. So going into the seventh inning, in his last 45 and two-thirds innings pitched, heading into the seventh inning last night against the Atlanta Braves, he allowed just two earned runs. He stayed in the game because the Angels thought that was best for the chances of winning. And as I said, they've won all six of his last six starts heading into last night and only won 12 games. Since the end of May. So that's the decision they had to make was keep him in the game. And if you look at it, obviously the only chance that they have of winning is when he's on the mound. As I said, they've only won 12 games since the end of May. And six of those 12 games are Shohei Otani starts. And he's won all six of his last six starts. So they ride him out, let him have one more inning, go out there for the seventh. And as I said, heading into the seventh inning last night, his last 45 and two-thirds innings pitched allowed just two earned runs. And went out there for the seventh inning. And allowed six runs and only could get one out in the seventh inning. But still a 2-8 ERA and a 9-5 record on the year on the mound. And is still hitting well too. So at the end of the day, I don't think the Angels are going to trade him just because of how much value he has to that team. But with one year left on his deal, you never know. I mean, they could say we're not going to be able to pay him the money he deserves. So they could potentially shop him. 
But his price at the end of the day is going to be very heavy and very high, and rightfully so, to try to trade for him. And then also you're going to have to give him an extension around $50 million, 45 to $50 million a year. And he's going to break records with the deal he's going to get. And rightfully so, he deserves it. One of the best players in the major leagues. Number one, won the ESPY for the best male athlete a couple of nights ago now, and also won the best MLB player. So as you can see, he's getting recognized how great of a player he is, how much dominance he has on the mound and in the batter's box. And honestly, rightfully so. He's one of the best players in the game. And honestly, one of my favorite players, too. That's why I always talk about the Angels, especially when I come on here. I'm always talking about them because, as I said yesterday, every single time Shohei Otani and Mike Trout touch the field, there's something historic that could happen every single night. And that's why I love that Angels team because they have two of the best players in the game and they're exciting to watch just because of those two guys. Even when they're losing games, you can still watch an Angels game if it's on TV because of Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. But long story short, with that trade rumor about Shohei Otani potentially being shopped, I don't think they're going to trade him. And just as I'm saying that, I go to the notification that teams are calling about Otani, but the Angels have no plan to move him despite the outside interest, according to MLB Network. So they're not going to trade him. And another trade rumor I have is that Juan Soto is now potentially being pursued by the New York Yankees, which isn't surprising. The Yankees have a great farm system, so they could get a trade for him. But the Yankees have reached out and expressed interest in a deal for the national superstar, is what I just saw a notification for from Bleacher Report. And then also from MLB.com, the Yankees have ramped up their Benintendi chase. They want Andrew Benintendi from the Kansas City Royals. Another team has been interested in Juan Soto. San Diego Padres, according to ESPN, have been trying to pursue a trade from the Washington Nationals. So that's all the trade rumors there about Juan Soto and Shohei Otani. It's going to be a very interesting trade deadline for that Red Sox team since I think they could be heavy sellers and it could be a fire sale at the end of the day. So now I'm going to move on to the NBA, talk about free agency moves, signings, and rumors. To start off, Magic shooting guard Gary Harris re-signed with the Orlando Magic for a two-year, $26 million extension. Averaged 11.1 points per game this season, coming off the bench, also split time in the starting lineup. He had his career-best 87.4% free throw shooting last season, shot 38.4% from the three-point line, and averaged a steal per game. He was traded during the 2020-2021 NBA season at the trade deadline from Denver to Orlando in the Aaron Gordon deal, and now he's staying with them on a two-year extension. Next up, Victor Oladipo is returning to Miami Heat on a one-year $11 million deal. He only has played 96 games over his last four seasons, but still averaged 17.7 points per game, 4.8 rebounds, 4.8 assists, and 1.3 steals per game over that stretch despite being injured. Still a very good player. I like Oladipo a lot. He averaged 10.6 points per game for Miami in 15 playoff games this year and 1.3 steals per game in the playoffs. He actually had 23 points in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals versus the Celtics. He shot 4 of 7 from 3 in that game, 7 of 16 from the floor with 6 assists and 4 rebounds. I love the way Oladipo plays. I've always been a big fan of him. Since his Oklahoma City days with Russell Westbrook, I love that duo a ton. I loved a lot of duos in Oklahoma City. Russell Westbrook and Paul George I was a big fan of, and then Oladipo and Russ as well. But he'll be staying with the Miami Heat on a one-year, $11 million deal. Next up, Nets guard Patty Mills has re-signed with the Brooklyn Nets a two-year, $14.5 million deal. Started 48 of 81 games last year, averaged 11.4 points per game, shot 40% from three in his first season with the Brooklyn Nets after playing with the San Antonio Spurs for 10 straight years under Greg Popovich. Next up, Raptors big man Chris Boucher is returning to Toronto on a two-year, excuse me, a three-year $35 million deal. 
Came off the bench with Toronto last year, averaged 9.4 points per game, 6.2 rebounds, 0.9 blocks, 46.4% shooting from the floor, and 29.7% shooting from three. In his 2020-2021 season, so just over a year ago now, two years ago, two seasons ago, he averaged 13.6 points per game, 6.7 rebounds, 1.9 blocks, 38.3% shooting from three, and 51.4% shooting from the floor. He actually was very good two years ago, and then last year struggled from the floor, 9.4 points per game after being 13.6 the year before that, and his shooting is what really went downhill. 46.4% this last year shooting from the floor compared to 51.4% two years ago, and 29.7% shooting from three this past year compared to 38.3% two years ago. Next up, the Thunder re-signed guard Lou Dort to a new five-year $87.5 million deal. The Canadian guard averaged 17.2 points per game, a 40.4% shooting, and 33.2% shooting from three this past year to go along with 4.2 rebounds and .9 steals per game. He started in all 51 games he appeared in. He's only 23 years old and definitely developed more over time now with Oklahoma City, especially a younger roster. They got Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Lou Dort, and then obviously a ton of first round draft picks in the next few years. So they're going to have a nice core two to three years from now to come, especially considering they got Chet Holmgren in the draft this year too. They're going to be good two to three years from now, the Thunder. Next up, forward Bobby Portis returned to Milwaukee in a four-year, $49 million deal. The Bucks also re-signed Wesley Matthews to a one-year, $2.9 million deal. Joe Ingles to a one-year, $6.8 million deal. Coming over from Portland, he missed the second half of last season after being traded from the Jazz. So they re-signed Wesley Matthews. Resigned Bobby Portis, and then for Joe Ingles, they gave him a deal out of free agency and signed him to a one-year, $6.8 million prove-it deal. As I said, he's coming off an injury. Missed the second half of last season after being traded from the Utah Jazz to the Portland Trailblazers. Next up, Heat free agent power forward. 37-year-old P.J. Tucker signed a three-year, $33.2 million deal with the 76s. He started 70 games for the Heat this past season. Averaging 7.6 points per game, 5.5 rebounds. He had a career-high 41.5% shooting from three. And also career-high 48.4% shooting from the floor. He now is an experienced veteran in the NBA. 11 years in the NBA, 16 years of pro experience. Played in 82 of 82 games in each of the last three seasons. And even played this past year in the playoffs in Miami when hurt. You could see he was laboring and still was giving it his all in the playoffs. He shot 45.1% from three for Miami in the 2022 playoffs and 7.9 points per game he averaged. So not a bad playoff run for him. Just about eight points per game and 45% shooting from three. He was great for them. Free agent point guard Ricky Rubio signed with the Cleveland Cavaliers a three-year $18.4 million deal. This team just keeps adding depth. They also signed Santa Robin Lopez to a one-year $2.9 million deal. They got great value out of both of those pickups, Ricky Rubio being a backup point guard and Robin Lopez being a backup center off the bench. But I'm a big fan of what that Cleveland Cavaliers team has been doing over the last two years now, drafting Isaac Okoro and Evan Mobley in the first round, and then also getting Abaji out of Kansas this past year, who was actually the March Madness player of the whole entire tournament, was the MVP of the tournament, winning, obviously, the national championship with Kansas. And then you still have Kevin Love. Still have Colin Sexton, who they actually have to give a new deal to. I'm pretty sure he's a restricted free agent right now. And then also Darius Garland, who they already gave a new deal to. And Kevin Love, Ricky Rubio, Brooke Lopez, Chetty Osmond. I actually like what this team's doing. I think that Cleveland Cavaliers team is going to surprise people. I think they're going to make a run in the East, truly. 
Next up, Warriors free agent forward Otto Porter agreed to a two-year contract with the Toronto Raptors in 63 games for the Warriors this past year, primarily off the bench, did start a couple games too. Porter averaged 8.2 points per game, 5.7 rebounds, 1.1 steals, off 37% shooting from three. He started three games for the Warriors in the playoffs, averaging 5.4 points and 3.4 rebounds per game. He was first in the NBA in turnover percentage in the 2016-2017 season with 4.9 turnovers per 100 plays. Very consistent player, careful with the ball, and also great add off the bench for that Raptors team. Next up, one of my favorite moves in all of free agency, Lakers free agent shooting guard Malik Monk agreed to a two-year $19 million deal to join forces with his former college teammate at the University of Kentucky, De'Aaron Fox. Now we'll be playing with De'Aaron Fox in Sacramento. So the former 11th overall pick will be reuniting with Fox, who was the fifth pick of that 2017 NBA draft, with Monk being the 11th pick. The Sacramento Kings actually could have taken Monk with the 10th overall pick in that 2017 draft. After taking De'Aaron at 5, they ended up trading that 10th pick. And now, lo and behold, they're still together and still friends. Now they're back together, finally reunited. I think he's going to have a great year. Monk turned his career around this past season with the Lakers after struggling in four years with Charlotte. Only started one game for the Hornets in four seasons. But this past year for the Lakers, started in 37 of 76 games, averaging a career-best 13.8 points per game, 39.1% shooting from three, 3.4 rebounds, 2.9 assists, a career-best 47.3% shooting from the floor, and also a career-best 28.1 minutes per game. Got a lot more opportunities with that Lakers team than he had with the Hornets. Now he will be joining a Sacramento Kings team that needs another shooter after losing Buddy Hield in that DeMontis Sabonis trade, along with that Tyrese Halliburton trade to the Indiana Pacers. Obviously Halliburton and Buddy Hield were traded for DeMontis Sabonis. But the Kings now have... The 5th pick in the 10th pick, 5th pick in the 11th pick, that is, of the 2017 draft. After driving De'Aaron at 5 and then Malik Monk at 11, they're finally reunited. One of my favorite pickups, and I think that's going to be a big pickup for that Sacramento Kings team. Very excited to see them reunited. Warriors free agent guard Gary Payton II signed a 3-year, $28 million deal with the Portland Trail Blazers. Averaged 7.1 points per game, 3.5 rebounds, 1.4 steals, and shot 35.8% from 3 this past season. He's a great defender at the bench and will provide great depth for that Portland team. Obviously a loss to the Warriors, especially considering he played great in the NBA Finals defense. I mean, even had a couple scoring games where he showed his offensive ability. So, great pickup for that Blazers team. Nets free agent guard Bruce Brown agreed to a two-year, $13 million deal with the Denver Nuggets. Four-year NBA veteran, played two years with the Brooklyn Nets after two years in Detroit. From Massachusetts, from Boston, so big fan of him for that reason. Became a good role player with the Brooklyn Nets in the Brooklyn rotation. Starting 82 of 137 games over the last two years, averaging 8.9 points per game, 5.1 rebounds, 1.8 assists, 1 steal, 35.9% shooting from 3, and 52.9% shooting from the floor. Very efficient player and a great pickup by that Nuggets team to provide them with some depth. Next up, free agent center DeAndre Jordan signed a one-year veteran minimum deal with the Nuggets. Played 48 games last year between the Lakers and the Sixers. Averaged 4.3 points per game, 5.5 rebounds, 0.7 blocks, and 13 minutes per game. That's actually his career low in minutes, points per game, and blocks per game, so it was not a great season for him. He is on the downtrend a little. He's not the same player he once was, but he can still be a good player off the bench for 10 to 12, maybe 15 minutes per night. He will now be 34 years old, uh, heading into the start of next season. 14-year NBA veteran, though, with great experience, so not a bad pickup for that Nuggets team. Free agent center Andre Drummond signed with the Chicago Bulls on a two-year, $6.6 million deal. Split time between Brooklyn and Philly this past year. Average a career low 7.9 points per game. Still grabbed 9.3 rebounds per game, though. 1.1 steals, 
0.9 blocks, and also shot 57% from the floor. He will bring the Bulls some help off the bench that they desperately need. Warriors free agent forward Juan Toscano Anderson signed with the LA Lakers, averaged 4.1 points per game this past year with Golden State. Played three years with the Golden State Warriors. Did have a career low, though, in points this last year with 3.6 minutes per game this past season, averaging 4.1 points per game with the Golden State Warriors, but did fall out of the rotation a little bit, only 13.6 minutes per game, which was low. Will provide the Lakers with some depth and young talent, though, since he's still young. Spurs free agent guard Lonnie Walker the fourth signed with the LA Lakers as well. A one-year $6.5 million deal. Averaged 12.1 points per game this past year off the bench with the San Antonio Spurs. Not a great three-point shooter, though. 31.4% from the three-point line and also 40.7% from the floor. But still gives the Lakers some young talent off the bench. Yet again, they the last year, they were really struggling since a lot of the guys were older and not really in their prime anymore. Rajon Rondo, Dwight Howard, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, all getting up there in age. But, I mean, still having great years, some of them, especially LeBron James. But Carmelo Anthony was still old, too. Now they add some young depth. Juan Toscano Anderson, Lonnie Walker IV. Those are two good pickups there for that Lakers team. The Lakers also signed Damian Jones and Troy Brown Jr. Starting to get younger, as I said, that Lakers team still trying to recruit young talent just because they need young, fresh legs off the bench. Jones averaged 8.1 points per game, 4.4 rebounds per game, and 0.8 blocks per game as the Kings' backup center this season. And then Brown shot 35.3% off the bench for the Bulls this past year to go along with 4.3 points per game. Free agent point guard Goran Dragic signed a one-year deal with the Chicago Bulls. 14-year NBA veteran played this last season with the Brooklyn Nets and Toronto Raptors. With Brooklyn, averaged 7.3 points per game, 3.2 rebounds, and 4.8 assists. Between the two teams, between the Raptors and the Nets, he struggled shooting, though, 37.7% shooting from the floor, which was a career low, and 25.4% from three, which was also a career low. So not a great year for Dragic this past year. Power forward Marvin Bagley re-signed with the Detroit Pistons, three years, $37 million. Traded from Sacramento to Detroit at the 2022 trade deadline after being the second pick by the Sacramento Kings in 2018. Averaged 14.6 points per game in 18 games for the Pistons. 6.8 rebounds and 55.5% shooting from the floor with the Detroit Pistons after being traded there after the deadline. So still good stat line in those 18 games. 14.6 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, and then 55.5% shooting from the floor. Next up, the Warriors re-signed Senta Kavon Looney to a new deal. Three years, $25.5 million, which is a steal. Had a career-best 7.3 rebounds per game this past season and a career-best in points at 6 points per game as well. Warriors 2015 first-round pick, 30th overall in that draft. Stays home with the Golden State Warriors after spending 7 seasons there. Now will be staying at least 8 through 10 years. Started 80 out of 82 games this past year and was honestly a big part of that Warriors team. He played great for them. Warriors also signed Dante DiVincenzo to a 2-year $9.3 million deal. DiVincenzo shot 33.9% from three this past year, split between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Sacramento Kings. Averaged nine points per game, four rebounds, and 2.8 assists in total. Struggled shooting, though, 35.1% from the floor, and also 33.9% shooting from three. 35.1% from the floor is not great at all. 33.9% shooting from three is good, but 35.1% from the floor is not good at all. Great defender, though. Third in NBA in defensive rating in the 2019-2020 season with a 101.3 rating. And was sixth in the same season with a 2.4 defensive box plus-minus rating. 
He won the NBA Finals with the Milwaukee Bucks in 2021 and helped them off the bench defensively. Phoenix free agent center JaVale McGee signed a three-year, $20.4 million deal with the Dallas Mavericks. 14-year NBA veteran, played with Dallas in the 2015-2016 season. So going back to Dallas, going on to his fifth team now in the last four seasons. Came off the bench of Phoenix this past year, averaging 9.2 points per game, 6.7 rebounds, 1.1 blocks, and 62.9% shooting from the floor. Three-time NBA champion, brings experience and help to that Mavericks team in the paint. Cleveland point guard and former 2019 fifth overall pick, Darius Garland signed a rookie max extension with the Cleveland Cavaliers, five years, $193 million. Garland had a sensational year this past season, starting in all 68 games. He appeared in for Cleveland, career best in five categories, 21.7 points per game, career best, 8.6 assists per game, which was a career best and also sixth best in the NBA, 89.2% shooting from the free throw line, which was a career best and seventh best in the NBA, 46.2% shooting from the floor, career best, and a 1.3 steal per game rate, which was also career best, and also shot 38.3% from the three-point line. So great year for him overall, averaged 35.7 minutes per game, which was sixth best in the NBA. He's a workhorse and also just chewed minutes for that Cavs team and was also 2022 NBA All-Star selection. So great pickup there for him money-wise. The San Antonio Spurs signed forward Calvin Johnson to a four-year $80 million extension. Former Kentucky Wildcat averaged 17 points per game, 6.1 rebounds this past year, 46.6% shooting from the floor this past season, and 39.8% shooting from three. Heading into his fourth NBA season at just 22 years old, great pickup there for him getting a four-year $80 million extension from the San Antonio Spurs, who, as I said, drafted him out of Kentucky. Danilo Gallinari, who signed a two-year, $13 million deal with the Celtics, turned down more money, supposedly, according to him in his press conference, his introduction to the Boston media, said he turned down more money from the Chicago Bulls to play in Boston because he always wanted to be in Boston at some point in his career. So, big pickup there for the Celtics, especially at the money that he's getting, two years, $13 million. It provides depth, shooting, consistency at the free throw line, inconsistency, honestly, with turnovers, too. He's not going to turn the ball over, help you from the three-point line, help you with scoring, help you with free throws, and help you calm the game down. Great pickup there off the bench for the Celtics. Trailblazers point guard Damian Lillard, superstar, signed a two-year, $122 million extension to stay in Portland through the 2026-2027 NBA season. So he'll be with the Blazers through 2026 and 2027. Dame is now in line to be the second-highest earning player in the history of the NBA behind LeBron James with $451 million in career earnings after this extension ends. So quite the pickup, $451 million in career earnings after this extension ends in the 2027 offseason. So great pickup there for him money-wise. The Phoenix Suns matched DeAndre Ayton's four-year $133 million offer sheet from the Indiana Pacers. Ayton has averaged a double-double with 14-plus points per game and 10-plus rebounds per game in all four of his NBA seasons. Coming off a 17.2 point per game season, 10.2 rebounds, and 63.4% shooting from the floor. Clearly, they did not want to let him go, and that's the reason they end up picking up that offer sheet and keeping him on the roster. There were rumors he could be traded to the Brooklyn Nets at some point, but he actually has now a one-year no-trade clause due to the fact that he signed that deal. He has the right to it, so he won't be moved for at least a year. James Harden signed a two-year, $66 million deal with the Philadelphia 76ers. Took a $15 million pay cut per year to help the team's salary cap. He now has a player option for the 2023-2024 NBA season and can opt out after this upcoming season. But quite the pickup 
there for that Sixers team since they're getting him at only $33 million. He's not the player he once was, so getting the $45 or $50 million he could have opted in for. He's just not that player worth $45 million or $47 million, I think it was. But getting two years, $66 million, is better value for that Philadelphia 76ers team, especially considering they traded for him. Typically, if you trade for a guy, you don't want to lose him, especially after just one year. That's kind of what happened with the Giants in 2019 when they traded for Leonard Williams. They trade for him right before the NFL trade deadline and give up a third-round pick and a fifth-round pick, and you don't want to waste those draft picks and just let him leave in free agency. So you end up signing him to a contract just to keep him, just because you don't want to give up all those assets and then lose him on a rental. But James Harden, two years, $66 million. Not a bad pickup for that Sixers team, especially with them saving $15 million per year in a pay cut. Seems like at this point, though, Kevin Durant could be staying with the Brooklyn Nets since Nets GM Sean Mox would not be able to get enough in return, it seems like. Nets wanted Cal Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards, and four first-round picks from Minnesota in return for Kevin Durant, but seems like no team's going to give you that much. I would never give up Cat and Edwards. I wouldn't give up Edwards for anyone in general. I think he's going to be a top 12 player in the NBA this upcoming season. But... Kevin Durant supposedly only wants to play for Miami and Phoenix, but I don't think he's going to be moved at this rate. Maybe if Miami want to create a trade package around Kyle Lowry and Tyler Hero and draft picks, but even then, I don't think that's enough. He supposedly wants to play with Jimmy Butler, Bim Adebayo, and Kyle Lowry in Miami, but you have to trade a big piece in order to get him, and it would have to be at least Kyle Lowry, since I don't think Adebayo can be traded, and you're not going to trade Jimmy Butler. Kyrie Irving who also could potentially be traded, has missed more games, 130 games, than he has played 117 games since joining the Nets in 2019, which includes the playoffs. He's missed more games than he's played, 130 missed games to 117 played games in the past three years now since 2019. So he hasn't really been giving the Nets really much consistency, and I think they're going to trade him because I I think they're done with his antics. But the only deal that was discussed at any point was centered around Russell Westbrook, who actually just fired his agent about a week ago now, that Foucher, after 14 years of being together. Foucher spoke with ESPN and said Westbrook's best option is to stay with the Lakers, embrace the starting role, and support that Darvin Ham has publicly offered him. Personally, I wish Westbrook stayed in Washington. I know I'm getting a little sidetracked here because I was talking about Kyrie Irving, but I personally wish Westbrook stayed in Washington. He had 24 triple-doubles in his last 29 games with the Washington Wizards. Washington had a 19-10 record over those 29 games, which included an 8-game win streak at one point and a stretch that they won 11 of 13 games. He turned their season around and actually helped them make the playoffs. In that 29-game stretch, Russ averaged 23.1 points per game, 13.7 rebounds per game, 13.6 assists per game, 1.4 steals per game, 44.8 shooting from the floor, 33.1% shooting from three, and 38.8 minutes per game. There's not a statistic there that isn't impressive. 23 points per game, 14 rebounds, 14 assists, one and a half steals, 45% shooting from the floor, 33% shooting from three, and 39 minutes per game. Very impressive by Russ, and he can still give you that, I believe. And that's why I want him to leave the Lakers. I think Russell Westbrook's best opportunity is if he leaves the Lakers. Although I love him and LeBron James together since they're two of my top, probably seven favorite players in the NBA. It's just not working there, and I'm sick and tired of Russ being the reason that everyone thinks the Lakers are losing. Everyone just likes to blame him. I'm sick and tired of that. I wish he stayed in Washington. On a nightly basis, he was putting up triple-double numbers and giving the Wizards everything he had on every single possession and in every single second of every single game. And that's effort and hustle you don't find in every single NBA team. 
I love the LA Clippers because they hustle and give it their all every single second. And Russell Westbrook plays with that same mentality. He gives you everything he has every single second, and he doesn't care if he burns out. He'll give you 45 minutes a night if you need it. Whatever you need, Russell Westbrook gives you minutes-wise. And that's why I don't blame him for the problems in, in LA. Because he played this past season. You got Anthony Davis missing half the season and LeBron James missing 30-plus games. But Le- Russell Westbrook, he gave her everything he had while LeBron and AD were out. In the 2020-2021 NBA season, the Wizards went 18-7 in their last 25 games, led by Russ, who got them into a play-in game, and then into the playoffs. They lost in five games in the Sixers that year in the first round, but in those five games, in those playoff games, Russ averaged 19 points per game, 10.4 rebounds, and 11.8 assists per game. And this is just one season ago, technically two NBA seasons ago now, just a year ago now, though, a year and change. Russ was reunited with his former Oklahoma City head coach, Scott Brooks, who was the Thunder head coach back when they made the NBA Finals in 2011. He was reunited with Scott Brooks in Washington, and he played with so much more comfortability. He was more comfortable in Washington than he is now in L.A. But as I'm talking about how well he played with Washington in the 2021 NBA season, at the end of the 2021 season, right before the playoffs, in his last 10 games over this past year for the Lakers, so just a couple months ago now, Russ played very well and did not get any recognition for it. In his last 10 games with the Lakers, he shot 52.1% from the floor, 41.5% from three, to go along with 22.2 points per game, 7.4 rebounds per game, 7.1 assists per game, and had 20-plus points in eight of the last 10 games he played in. The Lakers were 2-8 over that stretch, and it was not Russell Westbrook's fault. By any means, in my opinion, at all. Russ gave you everything he had, 22 points, 7.5 rebounds, 7 assists per game, off 52% shooting from the floor and 42% shooting from three. You can't ask for any more from Russell Westbrook. He is not to blame for why the Lakers struggled this past season. Blame it on LeBron and blame it on Anthony Davis for not playing. Because Russ held up his end of the bargain by coming in and playing. The Lakers knew what they were getting with Russ. He's not a guy that's going to give you 50% shooting from three on a nightly basis or 45% shooting from three. They knew what they were getting with Russell Westbrook. Everyone knew what they were getting with them. Now he's just a scapegoat, though, for why the Lakers did not have a good season this past year. And that's why I'm fed up with that Lakers team. And I hope Russell Westbrook leaves for his own sake. I'm too big of a fan of Russ to see him be criticized as much as he was this past season. And as I said, his last 10 games, no one's going to talk about that because everyone just loves to hit you when you're down. The only time you're going to be talking about the media if you're Russell Westbrook is when you're missing bad shots and you have a shot that goes off the side of the backboard or you had a bad turnover or you had a bad game in general. They don't talk about the 10 games he had in L.A. at the end of last season, his last 10 games, averaging 52% shooting from the floor, 42% shooting from three, 22 points, 7.5 rebounds, 7 assists, and 20-plus points in eight of his last 10 games. They don't talk about that. They only want to talk about you when you're down and when you can be hit easily and when you're an easy target. And that's my problem with Russell Westbrook being in L.A. I want him gone. I want him free. According to Chris Haynes, an NBA insider for Yahoo Sports, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook have had phone calls to, and to quote his words, to express their commitment to one another and vowing to make it work. So who knows what's going to happen with the Lakers team this upcoming season, whether or not they're going to keep Russ or not. But I think what they have to look at is Russ gives you everything he has on a nightly basis. And you know if he's on the floor, he's never going to quit. He'll hustle every single play. And you know he's not just going to sit out games for whatever reason. Look at Kyrie Irving has missed more games than he's played with the Brooklyn Nets since joining them in 2019. He's played in only 117 games and has missed 130 games since 2019. And that, that includes the playoffs. 
One thing about Kyrie Irving is you don't know if he's going to show up. He could just not want to play one day. He could just retire one day. He could just quit. He could just sit out one game just because he wants to do it and show the show that he has the power to do it. But with Russell Westbrook, every single night there's a game. You know when the game starts, he'll be on the floor chasing after every loose ball, giving it everything he can. Every single night, Russ gives you every single bit of energy he has. And that's my one criticism about him in L.A. is that he can't give it his all because he's criticized for doing this and that. He can't shoot threes freely like he did in, with Washington and shoot like he did with the Wizards and, and the Thunder and the Rockets because he's criticized every time he misses a shot. He can't miss a shot without being criticized by the media and ESPN and on Twitter and by Skip Bayless and by Colin Coward. He can't do anything without getting criticized by the media. And that's why I feel bad for Russell Westbrook. He doesn't deserve that, especially a guy that gives you it his all every single night. You don't know what you're getting from Kyrie Irving on a nightly basis. You know what you're getting from Russell Westbrook, and you know that's every single bit of energy he has in his system. And even if he's not giving you the 30, 10, and 10 like he used to on a nightly basis, he can still give you 20, 10, and 5, or 20, 10, and 7 on a nightly basis. He can still give you a triple-double every single game if he wanted to. But the issue is that he's not letting him play comfortable. And that's my problem. I want him out of L.A., and I want him to be free. So just to finish up the free agency talk, I'm going to give you a list of some guys that are out of their prime but still solid ads for free agency depth. Carmelo Anthony, who is reportedly talking with the LA Lakers about a return. Rajon Rondo, Paul Millsap, LaMarcus Aldridge, Isaiah Thomas, Andre Iguodala, Lou Williams, Wayne Ellington, Blake Griffin, Sergi Baca, Lance Stevenson, and Tristan Thompson are all free agents and solid gets still in free agency as depth. So for the last few minutes, I'm going to sum up how the Summer League went. I'll talk about how the rookies did. I'll talk about who won the Summer League. And then I'll also talk about how the Celtics performed in the Summer League. So to start off, there were some injuries to top 10 picks. Shaden Shop was injured. Dyson Daniels was injured. Daniels, due to a right ankle sprain, missed some Summer League games. Daniels actually got hurt with an ankle sprain in Game 1 in the first quarter of his first game. It was 0-5 before getting injured with two assists, a rebound, and a steal. Then Shaden Shop. Had a shoulder injury in his first game. Not necessary to have surgery, though, thankfully. But only played five minutes and was one of three from the floor with two points and 0 of two from three in his debut. Only played one game, though, just like Dyson Daniels. Another injury was Jaden Ivey, who I'm going to talk about in a minute. He actually had an ankle sprain at the start of game two that made him miss the last few Summer League games. On the bright side, Paula Boncaro played very well for the Orlando Magic. After a couple games, he was shut down just as rest since they saw enough promise out of him, and he put up great numbers. They you know, play it safe. They don't want to get him hurt. He averaged 20 points per game, 40.7% uh, shooting from the floor, five rebounds, six assists per game, two and a half steals per game, one block per game. Did have a problem with turnovers, though, five turnovers per game on average, but it's only the summer league. It's exhibition games at the end of the day, and he showed a lot of great promise and showed – a lot of abilities out there. Showed he had a lot of talent, obviously, that everyone knew he had. But going out there and putting up 20 points per game, a 41% shooting, five rebounds, six assists, two and a half steals, a block per game. That's a great run just in two games. So a good summer league for Boncaro. Chet Holmgren of the Oklahoma City Thunder started off hot right away. Became actually the first player in summer league history to record at least five blocks and hit four three-pointers in the same game. He had a summer league record of six blocks in his first league uh, summer league game. Second overall pick in this year's draft. Averaged 12 points per game, a 46.4% shooting from the floor, 42.9% shooting from three, 87.5% shooting from the free throw line, 7.7 rebounds per game and two blocks per game. 
was very impressive in the summer league. It showed a lot of talent on the offensive end and defensive end, shooting-wise, defensively in the paint, getting rebounds and blocks. He had a great summer league. Next up, Sacramento Kings, who had an absolute home run with their draft pick of Keegan Murray at the fourth overall pick out of Iowa. And I know it's only the summer league, but you can see that this kid can play and will make their offense so much more dynamic for De'Aaron Fox, Davion Mitchell, and DeMontis Sabonis. He's going to help out this team so much in the offensive and defensive end. He was a great draft pick at fourth overall. I'm happy I drilled that fourth overall pick. He was my prediction because I thought he would help that Sacramento Kings team. So I was hoping they would draft him at fourth. And look at what happened. He was a fourth overall pick. And a lot of the time with my mock drafts of the NBA and NHL in the MLB as well, I give picks based off of what I would do with that pick. And I think at fourth overall, I think Keegan Murray was the better pick for that Sacramento Kings team because they already had enough guards. Davion Mitchell, De'Aaron Fox. They took Tyrese Halliburton a few years ago. Obviously traded him, but they've taken God's three straight drafts. So Jaden Ivey, I do think is a great player, and I love Jaden Ivey a lot. I love his game, but I think at the end of the day, Keegan Murray's a better draft pick for them, and Murray balled out for them. You could tell this kid just has so much talent. Average 23.3 points per game, a 50% shooting, 40% shooting from three. Also averaged three and a half three-pointers made per game in the summer league. 7.3 rebounds and 1.3 steals per game. So he shows you what he can do in the offensive end, shooting from the three, in the paint, defensively, getting rebounds and steals. He was a summer league MVP, all summer league first team selection. And this was actually the second straight year the Kings had the summer league MVP. Last year was the first round pick. Point guard slash shooting got out of Baylor, Davion Mitchell, ninth overall selection by the Kings. Won the Summer League MVP last year, along with Cam Thomas of the Brooklyn Nets. There were two Summer League MVPs last year. But second straight year, the Kings had the Summer League MVP. So very impressive showing there for Keegan Murray. Now Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duran, two first-round draft picks in the top 15 by the Detroit Pistons. I really liked what I saw from both of these two guys in limited action. Ivey had an ankle sprain at the start of Game 2. Still averaged 15.5 points per game of 50% shooting. Four assists per game, three rebounds per game in the two games he played. Really only played one game in a quarter, though. In game one, he was electric, 20.6 rebounds and six assists. Then in game two, with just five minutes of action, had 11 points in five minutes of two of two shooting, one of one shooting from three, six of six shooting at the free throw line, and two assists. Shows you what he can do in such limited time. 11 points in five minutes without missing a shot, two of two from the floor, one of one from three, and six of six from the free throw line. He was really just getting hot in that game, too, but ends up going down with an ankle injury, but was not too serious. They were just resting at the end of the day. Jalen Duran was rested as well. After three summer league games, he averaged 11.3 points per game, 3.33 rebounds, two assists per game, and one block per game of 65.5% shooting from the floor. I caught a few of their games, uh, and one of them was the first game. He caught a few great lobs from Jaden Ivey, and they're already showing great chemistry after only three games with Duran and two games from Ivy, you can just tell this Detroit Pistons team will be a team to watch out for this year. I really like what they've done on the last few drafts and in free agency. I think that Pistons team and that Cleveland Cavaliers team have set up well for the future. I think the Cavs will surprise teams this year and make a run at it in the East. I think the Detroit Pistons will be good as well. I think they're a team to watch out for this year. So overall, the Portland Trailblazers won the Summer League Championship. This year was the first year ever that they actually gave out rings for it. They defeated the New York Knicks in the finals. Trenton Watford was a summer league, all summer league, second team selection for the Blazers. He actually played sometimes 
for this past year. Played some minutes for a tanking Portland Trailblazers team in the NBA. He averaged 13.6 points per game in the Summer League this year to go along with 7.8 rebounds per game, 1.4 steals per game, and 1 block per game. In the Summer League Finals game, he had 19 points on 46.7% shooting from the floor. Very impressive game. 19 points, 46.7% shooting from the floor. 7 rebounds, 3 steals, and a block. Had a very good showing and made a name for himself. Played very well. As for the Celtics, they were 3-2 and two in the Summer League. Lost the Brooklyn Nets in the playoffs in the Summer League. They were 3-1. and one. In the regular season part of it, then going to face the Nets, lost that game, finished three and two. But one positive thing for that Celtics team in the summer league was French guard in 2021 second round pick from the Paris basketball team, Juwan Bagarin had a great summer league showing. He was actually criticized a ton before for his offensive game, but he proved everyone wrong in the five summer league games he played this summer. I know it's only the summer league, but he showed a lot of promise and a lot of de- uh, skills that he developed over the past year now playing in Paris. And I'm a big fan of him, a French god. So, you know, I'm a fan of him just because of that. But in five starts, he was the Celtics' leading scorer with 18.2 points per game for those who played three-plus games. Uh, he was actually 12th in the Summer League in points per game among all players. Among those who played four-plus games, he was fifth. Matt Ryan was actually first on the Celtics in, point per, in points per game. Not the Atlanta Falcons' former quarterback and now Indianapolis Colts quarterback and former BC quarterback as well. Not that Matt Ryan, a different Matt Ryan, who averaged uh, around 20 points per game in the summer league in the two games he played. But Juwan Bagarin actually had the most points per game uh, on average for the Celtics for those who played three-plus games. And then among all players in the summer league, he was 12th in points per game. And then among those who played four-plus games, so four games or five games in the summer league, he was fifth. So very good showing for him. He shot 42.7% from the floor, 33.33% from the three-point line, had 5.6 rebounds per game, which is good enough for third on the team, 2.4 assists per game, 1.8 steals per game, which was number one on the team, the 1.8 steals per game, and then also did average 4.2 turnovers per game. That's definitely something he has to work on, but he did have three games of three steals, so he shows you he has a lot more defensive versatility now over the past year. Shot a lot better, averaging 18.2 points per game. Did lead the team in minutes at 31.1 minutes per game. Out of 40, that is, since summer league games are shorter. Out of 40 minutes, he averaged 31.1 minutes of action. He had double-digit points in all five games. He played 20-plus points in two games. Had 25 points in the summer league playoff game versus the Nets. With 9-17 shooting from the floor, 3-6 or six shooting from three. Seven rebounds, three steals, and three assists. Last summer, though, in the Summer League, he only averaged 6.2 points per game, 3 assists, 3.4 rebounds, and 1 block per game to go along with 21.4% shooting from 3 and 39.4% shooting from the floor. This year in the Summer League, though, he's up from 6.2 points per game last year to 18.2 points per game this year, so 12 more points per game on average. And also his 3-point shooting last year was 21%, now it was 33%. His shooting overall was 39% last year and is now 43%. And also showed you a lot more versatility defensively on the defensive end, giving you steals at 1.8 steals per game. So great showing for Begarin. I'm a big fan of him. Celtics 2022, second round pick out of Alabama. They're only draft pick in this draft. Point guard J.D. Davidson, only 19 years old, so Davidson has a lot more time to develop. But in 30.3 minutes per game on average 
of action in the summer league. He averaged 13 points per game, 43.4% shooting from the floor, 46.7% shooting from three, was very efficient from the three-point line, 85.7% from the free throw line, and 4.8 rebounds per game to go along with 8.2 assists per game, 1.2 blocks per game, and 1.2 steals per game. One thing he did have a problem with was his turnovers, which was his issue at Alabama. He did average three turnovers per game in the summer league, but as you can see how much he adds on the offensive end, averaging 13 points per game off 47% shooting from three and 86% shooting from the free throw line. He gives you a ton defensively, though. 1.2 blocks per game, 1.2 steals per game, and then the offensive end, which I forgot to mention, the 8.2 assists per game. He led the summer league in assists per game and actually had the third most assists per game in a summer league ever. Celtic Summer League record, too, in total assists with 41. He had six-plus assists in all five Summer League games, had 9, 10, and 10 in his last three games in the Summer League, and actually finished the last two games with a double-double. His fourth game against the Grizzlies was his best game overall. 28 points of 9 of 14 shooting from the floor, 64.3% shooting from the floor, which is elite. 64% from the floor is great. 6 of 6 shooting from the free throw line, 10 assists, 4 of 6 shooting from three, Five rebounds, three steals, and a block. He actually had a couple games versus the Bucks and Warriors with five points in each of those games. Three turnovers in one of them and five in another. He did struggle in two of the five games, but he showed a lot of promise and also showed his ability to help on the defensive end. So he maybe could be a back end of the rotation guy for the Celtics if he does make it up to the active roster during the season. Maybe he'll play five minutes to ten minutes per game and maybe take a Peyton Pritchard role during the regular season. Other things in the Summer League, Cam Thomas on the Nets balled out for a second straight year in the Summer League, was an all-Summer League first-team selection for the second straight year, finished second in points per game with 27.4 points per game on average with 4.2 assists per game and 44.2% shooting from the floor. He had 25-plus points per game in all five Summer League games he appeared in. He may get more minutes for this Brooklyn Nets team this year. He could provide them better depth off the bench than what they had in the playoffs. In 2021, he was a Summer League MVP. There were two Summer League MVPs last summer. The other one I mentioned was Davion Mitchell of the Sacramento Kings. I talked about him already a little bit, but very good showing again for Cam Thomas, and who knows, maybe he'll get some more time in the back end of that Brooklyn Nets rotation. One of my favorite plays in the draft was French big man Ishmael Kamagati, who was drafted by the Denver Nuggets. He averaged 5.4 points per game of 80% shooting from the floor, 5 rebounds, and 1.2 Blocks per game on average. Had a good showing. Showed ability to help you out in the offensive end and pick and roll. And then also played very well in the paint, giving you blocks and rebounds. So good showing for him. Clippers second round pick, Musa Diabate, French forward from the University of Michigan. Played in two summer league games, averaging 9.5 points per game, 7.5 rebounds per game, one steal per game, 0.5 blocks per game. Once again, very versatile on both ends of the floor. Can give you 10 points and 8 rebounds. He'll probably get some minutes at the back end of that Clippers rotation. Maybe give you 10 minutes a night to 15 minutes a night, like Isaiah Huttenstein did, who actually just left for the New York Knicks. I talked about him in my free agency episode already, my last one, which is a week or two ago now. Last thing I'm going to mention, the Warriors' young core of Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, and James Wiseman all performed very well in the Summer League this year. All three of those guys, at least for Wiseman, he was hurt. But for Kaminga and Moody, neither one of those guys played really any minutes, quality minutes at least, for that Warriors team in the playoffs. But now the Warriors are basically adding three first-round picks to their rotation this year since Kaminga and Moody were both first-round picks in 2021, didn't play too much at the end of this last season. They didn't get too many minutes in the rotation. And then James Wiseman... Second overall selection in 2020, 
they're basically adding three first-round draft picks to this rotation this year. So I think the Warriors will be very scary this year. Moody averaged 27.5 points per game with four rebounds, one and a half steals, and one and a half assists per game in two games in the Summer League. He actually averaged the most points per game in the Summer League. He did only play two games, though, but 27.5 points per game in those two he played in. And then for Jonathan Kaminga, he averaged 19.9 points per game, so just under 20 points per game in the four games he appeared in. 3.8 rebounds and three assists per game. Did struggle shooting, though, from the floor. 40.6% shooting from the floor with 20% shooting from three and 47.1% from the free throw line. Clearly not a great free throw shooter, 47% from the free throw line, but hopefully he works on that over the summer. And then James Wiseman, former second overall draft pick in 2020, did average 10.5 points per game, 5.5 rebounds, and also two point two blocks even, actually, per game in his four games played. So... 10.5 points, 5.5 rebounds, and 2 blocks per game in the 4 games he appeared in. Wiseman played very well as well. So, very good showing there for the Warriors' young core. They're going to be a very scary team this year. I think they can make a run. I think the Clippers and the Warriors will be the teams in the West. Then in the East, I think the Celtics will be in the mix. I really like what the Cavs did. I think it comes down to, and people might think I'm crazy, but as of now, I haven't really done my NBA season predictions. I will do that at some point when we see how things shake out with Kyrie, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, that's when we'll I'll really do my NBA predictions for this year. But off the top of my head now, the two teams I think going to the Western Conference Finals, Warriors Clippers, and then in the East, as of now, I give the Bucks the edge. I think they're the best team in the East. And then I really like what the Cavs did. I think the Cavs are going to be a team that surprises people. I think they could make a run in the East. So there's my picks right now, I guess. But that'll change definitely over time. Anyways, thank you guys so much for taking time to listen to this. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much again. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope you guys don't waste any time watching the Red Sox. As I said, they just have no juice left in the system. That Red Sox team is completely depleted and defeated. Looks like the season really is just in the drain now. It seems like it's over for them. But thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. Hope you guys have a great rest of your weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed this. And as I said, I hope you guys don't waste any time watching this Red Sox team. Unless they have a miraculous comeback and turn it around this year. Baseball, one way thing about baseball is you can lose by 20 runs one day and then win the next day in a close game, like a 3-2 to two game. And you completely forget the day yesterday. But I think one thing about baseball, which I always say is, the best thing about losing a bad game on, let's say, a Friday night like we just lost, is being able to play the next day on Saturday. So... Hopefully the Red Sox turn it around, but as I said, I think this team's depleted and defeated, and I think they're going to be major sellers at the trade deadline in just under two weeks now, just about 10 days to go. Thank you guys so much for taking time to listen to this. As I said, I appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Thank you.